Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, host of Where We Live, Connecticut Public Radio's morning news talk show. I'm hosting a conversation focused on education in a pandemic. We know public school districts across the state have submitted plans for reopening. This means schools could fully reopen or they could follow a hybrid plan that includes a combination of in-person and online instruction. Now, I'm a parent of two kids in elementary school, and I'll admit I still haven't made up my mind what to do this fall. What's best for my kids? What's best for the town where I live? Will there be enough teachers and staff who feel safe to come back, despite talk of temperature checks and masks and plexiglass barriers? It's not an easy decision. Tonight, we'll hear from other parents who are trying to figure out what's best for their families. Despite all the planning, coronavirus hasn't gone away. Schools in Connecticut could reopen and then close if there's an outbreak or if COVID-19 cases grow in our state. So what does that mean for remote learning in a state where resources and needs look very different from one town to the next? Coming up, we'll hear from Connecticut's child advocate about the state's responsibility to make sure each child receives an equitable education, whether sitting inside a school or at home. We'll also hear from an elementary school teacher in Bridgeport. By now, you've heard from health and education officials, the governor's office, and public school administrators. But in these conversations, we don't often hear the perspective of students. So joining me now on Skype is Deshaun Palmer. He's a recent high school graduate of Pathways Academy of Technology and Design in East Hartford. And in just a few weeks, the Hartford Promise Scholar will start his freshman year at Southern Connecticut State University. Deshaun, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. First off, congratulations on your high school graduation being a class, being part of the class of 2020. How did it feel once you were done with high school? Honestly, I still feel like I'm not done with high school because the graduation was really different. Not something I was like new. To. It was so new that it was like I haven't done anything like it. But it's great to be out of school and doing something different. So tell us, what was graduation like for you? <laughs> graduation was uh, it was a night to remember. So basically, it was basi- um They had rented out another school or had a time slot where we could come and get our diplomas. It was like a basically like a drive-in, like a drive-through at a fast food restaurant. Uh, we just came up. I got out, took a picture with the principal. Uh, we were six feet apart. He handed me my diploma. Um, he shook my hand with gloves on, of course. Uh, and then I had to get back in the car, drive two more feet, and get out of the car to take a picture by myself. And then, uh, then the teachers and some students uh, had uh, cheered me on as I drove off. It was basically like two minutes. Did you feel like you were cheated after all of the hard work that you went through to get to your senior year? I do kind of feel like I was cheated, but I'm not going to complain about it because I still did graduate. But I wish it was a little bit more of a graduation, you know? I hear that. So tell me a little bit about the three months that uh, you were finishing up your senior year. What was that like when you had to shift to online learning? 
it was kind of hectic because teachers didn't know what they were going to do. Students didn't know how they were going to continue with school. And some students actually didn't even make it to the end of their senior year. Some of them just dropped out and took the opportunity to just stop with school a whole as a whole. And um, some students, it was just so much of a change that like our highest students would drop down to like D's and F's just because it was so not, you know, interactive. So can I ask Deshaun, uh, what made you be motivated to keep doing your classes and get, getting your assignments done? Well, the area that I'm in, I obviously don't want to be here when I'm, you know, an adult, which is like a year away because I'll be 20 next year. So I want to make sure that I have, that I'm in school, that I'm still doing something with my life that's meaningful so I can keep going and not be distracted by the little things. Now, for you to graduate, you had to present a senior capstone. So what was that process like, getting the requirements done again before you got your diploma? Uh, it was really hectic because I had finished my capstone a month before the coronavirus even was a thing that was so open. And um, I turned it in during the online home stuff. So teachers just said we don't have to do it so most seniors like me we put it in but it wasn't we didn't have to do it because we usually have a class to help us write it and put everything together because this has to be a presentation but since we weren't really together we just they just cut it off so I guess we got really lucky because a lot of seniors weren't even actually going to do it. Can I ask you what your capstone project was going to focus on? Um, it might sound a little dark, but my um, capstone project was going to be how to deal with like death in a family or just around you. So um, it just related to me as like my life. I've, you know, it's been really close to me. You know, I lost my mom, my grandmother, my brother and my oldest sister. So it's like I just want to be able to put on for the next generation or the next seniors to know that it's OK. You know, you are strong enough to get through it. And I just wanted to write some meaningful words in it just to let everybody know that, you know, it happens to everybody what you're going through, and it's okay to go through that. Deshaun, I'm sorry to hear that you had to deal with those untimely deaths while you were still growing up, but I can't help but think of so many families that we know in our state who've lost a loved one because of this virus. And because you understand what it's like to go through trauma, when we think about what children need to return to school, it's more than just academics. When you think about the support you needed as an adolescent, does that make you worried that there are gonna be children who've lost loved ones or dealt with some kind of trauma this past year and they're not gonna be able to have the support if it's only gonna be online learning? Yeah, that, that does scare me a little bit for the next generation or the next seniors or whoever's going to school this fall because you know, you don't have that interaction with your guidance counselor or somebody who's supporting you to go to school and to do what you want to do in life. Because honestly, the three months, it, it gutted me because I thought that I was not going to be able to graduate and not going to be able to go to college because um, there were so many students just going to our guidance counselors that some of the seniors were just weaved out in, in, in the tall grass because we're still trying to do enrollments and paying for this and trying to get our financial aid and FAFSA ready and it was like I didn't even feel like I really wanted to go to college anymore because it was just so hard to finish out my high school career that I just was 
going to give up. But hopefully, luckily, I had people around me and my teachers were still contacting me because I had their phone number and everything like that. But I, I'm very afraid for students who don't have that support to keep going and to just do their best. Well, Deshaun, you should be proud that you made it. You graduated high school. And I should stress again that you're one of the Hartford Promise Scholars. You're, you have a scholarship to Southern Connecticut State University. That's so great. So tell me again, you've gone through a lot these past uh, three, four months. Now you're getting ready to start your freshman year. I understand you're a first-generation college student in your family. So how are you preparing? Honestly, there's not really much preparation because it's going to be just like the end of my high school career. So I'm not even sure if I should go to like Walmart and go get pencils and books and little cubbies and everything to get ready. But it's um, I guess I'm just going to have to be mentally prepared. Now, Deshaun, my understanding is that college campuses around the state, including uh, Southern Connecticut, uh, they are going to go go through with a reopening plan. So there may be some classes that are online, but there may be uh, certain classes where students could go on campus. Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Is this something where, because we're still in this pandemic, that you feel more comfortable continuing with the online classes? Uh, I feel more comfortable continuing with the online classes. Like I've made, uh, I've talked to my parents and some of my guidance counselors from high school still. And I think I'm just going to do the first semester online and see how this corona thing pans out for the rest of the year. And if it's any better and it starts to slow down, I might go back on campus because the rules on campus now are very strict because they have multiple thousands of kids on campus everywhere. So it's going to be really difficult. So I just said I don't want to stress myself out even more with the, following the rules and making sure I'm in the guidelines and, and all that. So. We started this conversation talking about what it was like for you to be a senior, having to shift to online learning, and you said there were students in your school that didn't do the assignments, they didn't log on. And I'm wondering, for the friends that you still have at Pathways, are you worried about what their education will be this coming year if, again, it's online remote learning and not that in-person instruction? Um, I'm worried about them every second, every minute of every day because they're like, I've had so many friends. I'm, I'm like the kid that you could talk to about anything. You know, I'm the support person of the group. I want to make sure everyone's doing their stuff and making sure they're the best person that they can be, even if they're having bad days. And it sucks that some of my friends are still second thinking about going to college and wondering if they should continue working at like McDonald's or whatever, because I don't want that to be the rest of their lives. You know, I want them to just persevere you know you can I was telling like you can get through this I know it's hard but if you keep your head up and just keep you know chugging along you're gonna be fine I know it's hard now but you can get through it well Deshaun you certainly have a positive energy about you and, and a positive outlook I think you're gonna do great at Southern whether you're in person on campus or working online I want to thank uh, Deshaun Palmer again for joining us He's a Hartford Promise scholar. He's going to Southern Connecticut in just a few weeks. Uh, thanks, Deshaun, for sharing a little bit of your story with us. Thank you guys for having me. I really do appreciate it. It's a great opportunity. 
I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You're listening to a special program I hosted for Connecticut Public. Coming up, we'll hear from an elementary school teacher in Bridgeport on how she's preparing for the upcoming school year. And we hear from Connecticut parents. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're listening today to a special conversation I hosted for Connecticut Public about education during the pandemic. Now, in July, the largest teachers union in our state weighed in about schools reopening. In its safe learning plan, the Connecticut Education Association says schools must delay reopening until the state provides the necessary funding to school districts to deal with all COVID-19 expenses. And the union says the state must provide weekly testing for all students and teachers. Teachers like Cherie Baldwin-Mohammed, she teaches at New Beginnings Family Academy, that's a public charter school in Bridgeport, Connecticut. She's also a member of Educators for Excellence, a teacher-led educational organization. Thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. My first question is, do you plan on going back to school in a classroom teaching students this fall? Actually, yes. I. It's currently teach a summer camp, so I only have a small amount of students. It does make me a little nervous about going back to school because um, kids naturally, um, well, not naturally, but they, they naturally want to hug. They naturally want to interact. You get all those social experiences from going to school, but a lot of that is going to have to be curtailed um, because of COVID. So I know that with the seven kids that I have right now, it's very hard to keep them from running over if somebody gets hurt and hugging them or um, wanting to help or wanting to share because that's what we've taught children to do. So I am a little bit nervous, but I do plan on going back in uh, September, actually, we're supposed to be going back. Tell me how your school has been communicating with you about all of the different guidance that, again, school's gonna be very different if schools can indeed open in another month. So walk us through what some of that guidance is and how things will be different for you, Cherie. Well, I haven't gotten any guidance, I would say directly from the school per se. Uh, Most of our guidance is coming from the governor's office. Um, so the parents currently are filling out surveys to let us know if they would like to have their children come eat to school either full time or we're also given the option of part time and a combination of distance learning. And then some parents are opting to just totally do the distance learning. I wouldn't say that I have complete hold on what's going to happen with the new school year because there really hasn't been any communication just basically with the surveys with the parents but i wouldn't say that the teachers have gotten much of anything Mm. is that surprising to you because you know you have to make plans and you're probably worried (laughs) about your family as well sheree i am because virtual learning was very difficult Um, I'm not very good with technology. Um, I am the type of teacher that really likes to be in the classroom and be very hands-on and that was difficult. I taught second grade last year and the students weren't able to log on to uh, the platforms that we use 
on their own and then parents had to work a lot of the parents were um essential workers so that was very difficult so i i'm a little bit nervous about it because i'm trying to figure out if i would have to do the in classroom as well as the virtual and planning for both so i'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like that sounds like a lot to have on your plate, but in terms of how you would be interacting with students, do you expect to be wearing a mask? Do you expect all of your students to be wearing a mask? Is that even possible? That is what the plan is. It doesn't happen. I know with the seven kids I have, they start out and I do temperature check their temperatures in the morning when they arrive and the masks are on the table, on the floor, underneath things, I'm picking them up and finally, I wear mine as a safety precaution. I wouldn't say that they leave it on all day long. We do try to go outside so that way they can run around, but it's been pretty humid lately. You know, we're not even sure how it spreads. So wearing the masks is, is a great precaution, but the kids are definitely, and especially the younger ones, I teach at lower elementary, and the younger ones do not know how to keep it on consistently. Now, Cherie, I'd mentioned we're going to be hearing from parents uh, throughout our program. We heard from Jessica, who's the parent of a child in the Bridgeport School District. Uh, here's what she decided for her daughter. Um, I do not plan on sending my daughter back to school for the fall season. My daughter has eczema and she has asthma and I'm a bit concerned with her wearing a mask all day in school. Um, she did very well for the online learning this past school year. Um, she was up every day at 8 a.m. I don't know if that's the same case for all the students, but she loves school. Um, she is disappointed in my decision. She would like to go back to school. However, I just don't think right now um, it is the best option for her. Um, you know, just generally overall worried about her um, health and her safety. So Cherie, we just heard from Jessica again, a parent of a child in the Bridgeport School District. Is this something you're hearing from other parents, parents whose children might have a medical condition and they just don't think it's safe for their child to go back to school? I hear it from a lot of parents. Um, I have a lot of friends and even parents from the school that are mentioning that they possibly will not um, send their child children back to school. There are some children that have uh, medical conditions. There are some children that just um, it's concerning for their health, um, for them not to be going to school and being exposed, possibly. Um, children come to school sick all the time, unfortunately. So there's a lot of concern as far as um, not being able to tell whether it's COVID or not. You know, you might have the sniffles or you might have a cough. And it may, you know, some people are saying that they don't have any symptoms at all. Um, so a lot of parents are very nervous about sending their children to school and choosing to possibly homeschool. 
You mentioned earlier that some of the parents uh, over the last uh, spring uh, when school had to shut down, some of those parents were essential workers. They couldn't be home for their children when they needed help with remote learning. So as you look to the fall, we don't know yet if COVID-19 cases are going to rise. We don't know how or when or if there will be outbreaks at certain schools and then schools have to close and online learning has to continue. I'm just curious your thoughts on for little kids, how do you keep them motivated to log on and when their parents or other adults won't be there uh, to give them that support? I, it was very hard. Um, I had a class of about 23. What happened was there was another teacher that left. Um, our class sizes are usually small, so I started out with only 16 children. But when all of this happened, the other teacher did not moved on and she didn't come back. So it was 23 children. And out of those 23, I would say only eight logged in on a regular basis for the lessons. Um, there was one straight A student whose mother mentioned that, you know, she was up really late. She wasn't wanting to do her work. Um, even when she was on the, the Zoom sessions, she would fall asleep. Um, and this was a straight A student. So when I was listening to um, the, the, the comments, about not turning in work that really hit home because there's a lot of students that at school were A students, but when they were distance learning, they did not turn in their work um, and f they fell behind. Um, we were on a pass fail, so um, we didn't necessarily fail them if they attempted. Some parents were not able to log in, but they did get the work and emailed it or took pictures of it um, if they weren't able to log in, but I would say only eight out of the 23 logged in. That's not a good rate of participation, Cherie. It sounds like lots of teachers, if they decide to go back, they're gonna have their work cut out for them, dealing with uh, the lessons and standards that you have to teach for grade level, but also trying to catch up what students uh, may have missed uh, when schools had to shut down. Yes, it's definitely going to be um, catch up. I'm hoping that some of the students uh, are working currently. We did offer some summer work. Um, there's a website that the, the students are to log in on Teams to do work over the summer, but it's definitely put um, a lot of students behind, um, which in a lot of cases, especially in Bridgeport, they're already behind. Um, so it's really going to be a disservice if we're not going to school, but then we need to be concerned about the student's safety. Now, as I mentioned, we're hearing from parents around Connecticut about their plans for their children this fall. If you helped your kids with remote learning this past spring and also tried to work at the same time, you know how challenging it was. This is what David from Eastern Connecticut experienced. Um, I myself am a college teacher and this spring I found myself teaching kindergarten, second grade, and college all at the same time, which was a nightmare and nearly drove me crazy. But I would do it again in a heartbeat and I plan on doing it because I wouldn't send them back this fall if I have any choice in the matter. Um, there are so many unknowns about this virus and one thing we do know is that there will be some unknown number of deaths 
of children, staff, faculty, and associated parents from sending children back to school in person this fall. The number of deaths from that particular type of contagion would be zero if we don't send them back in person. And given the rate of vaccine development, um, it doesn't seem that six months is too long to wait to save lives. I wanted to bring into our conversation Sarah Egan. Sarah is Connecticut's child advocate. Sarah, welcome to our conversation tonight. Hi, thank you, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Were you able to hear what David shared? I know that you also have children, you have a day job, so you know what David was experiencing. I do, you know, I mean, listening to what David said, uh, you know, it, it brings home the challenges that everyone in our community is grappling with. Um, this, these choices that, uh, about the things we care the most about, what's best for our children, um, their health, their lives, the health of our of ourselves and our loved ones. Um, you know, th these are just things we are not used to grappling with on a daily basis in an environment where there are so many unknowns. Um, it's, it's tremendously challenging. Health and safety is definitely important, and that's what the driver is of many of these conversations. What's safe for students? What's safe for teachers and staff? What's safe for caregivers if their children go to school and then come home? What if they have the virus? What if they make people, adults in their families sick? And it's a lot to grapple with. But when we also have this conversation, Sarah, it's also a conversation about equity and how the state and school districts are gonna handle the students who may not have support at home, maybe the parents have to go to work, or the students who really do better in person, in a classroom, how should the state handle that? Well, I think that equity, from my perspective, um, is the number one consideration when we think about education. Children have a right to an education. They have a right to a meaningful opportunity. The governor announced, Governor Lamont announced a uh, a great new initiative to um, provide money for devices and more uh, support to ensure connectivity uh, for kids across the state. You know, the work of the Office of the Child Advocate, of course, we care about all children, but we are particularly focused because of our statutory mission on children who are the least served, uh, the most marginalized, the most vulnerable. Right, that includes the huge swaths, the tens of thousands of children across the state that uh, don't have access to a device still, that don't have access to the internet still, that have not accessed meaningful education in months. And when, when school reopens in September, it's not three months of lost time, it's six months for a lot of these children. And in, in, in making this announcement about dollars that are be going to be com committed, I believe over $40 million um, committed to purchasing thousands of laptops for children, the governor um, encouragingly invoked a Brown versus Board of Education as a basis for that. And it, he said this is the Brown that the, the, the disconnect the lack of equity when it comes to connectivity, the governor said, is the Brown versus Board of Ed of our generation. And I wanted to pause on that for a minute because I, I it goes to the heart of something my office and our colleagues have been 
advocating a lot around in the last several months, which is do children have a right to an equal opportunity to a meaningful education during the pandemic? Because Brown versus Board of Ed would suggest that the answer to that question is yes. Sarah, when we look back at the school shutdown, I believe the State Department of Ed surveyed school districts around the state to see how many children were logged on, how many children were participating. What do we know of that data and what can we take from that data in terms of how policy makers and school leaders can try to be more equitable come fall? Right. So the data told us that uh, from the super, which was data from superintendents, it was the superintendents uh, response uh, to the State Department of Education around who was connected, who wasn't and why. Right. And the data is helpful. It tells us that across the state, we have communities where most kids are connecting on a regular basis, where there were zero families who were identified by that super local superintendent as not being able to regularly connect to school because of a lack of a device or a lack of access to internet. Um, and we had many communities in the 90 plus percent rate of regular meaningful participation. And that is terrific. And that doesn't mean the pandemic hasn't been hard for those kids and those families. It has been. But those are good numbers. And then we have numbers from around the state, 50 percent of regular participation in Bridgeport, 40 percent regular participation of kids in Hartford. But not just our urban centers. You know, some of our, our rural and, and, and other uh, places in Connecticut, Chaplin, 36% of students regularly participating. So those problems exist both in some of our urban communities, but also in some of our rural communities as well. And it told us what that, that a problem, a challenge that we have in Connecticut, Connecticut is identified as a state that has one of the largest achievement gaps in the country between white children and non-white children. We call that not just an achievement gap, it's an opportunity gap. It's an access gap, right? Achievement gap puts that puts the onus on children to sort of explain why they're not achieving, but it's not really an achievement gap. And and the pandemic has has taken all the disparities that have already existed and and just thrown a huge ultraviolet light on them. You know, now we, we see these in they're they're starker and they're impacting children and families in harsher and harsher ways. But but I, I, I applaud the State Department of Ed for getting the information and for um, acting on it. Sheree Baldwin Mohammed, I wanted to bring you back into this conversation. Can you respond to what Sarah Egan has shared, especially this idea of this opportunity gap and how the state has an obligation to address these concerns? I would say there's a great um, gap. Um, there's an opportunity gap, yes. But the, I think part of the problem, and yes, the last part that Sarah mentioned is possibly talking to the parents because it, was a, it wasn't just the devices in the internet. Even though um, our school gave devices, it was very late. Um, we didn't finish our last round of distribution until about May, which was almost the end of the school year. Um, once we got all of the devices to the children, it was still a problem, um, which was mentioned by one of the parents, juggling between having to go to work, having possibly sick 
family members. Um, I had three family members in my class alone that contracted COVID. Um, so the parent wasn't able to help their child. Thank goodness all of them recovered. But um, what happens to those children when they have that computers and they have the internet, but they're not old enough to access it on their own? So um, I think one piece that the governor may need to investigate is figuring out how to one, educate the parents on the standards um, in addition to the teachers, because what I found myself doing was being um, a tech support, also giving parents advice as far as what type of work to do at home, because my lessons could only be about an hour on the computer. I actually tried to do a virtual lesson with my two-year-old grandson today because he's in speech. So she mentioned um, special ed and students that are not getting the services that they, they need, whether it be speech, whether it be OT, whether it be any of those types that can't necessarily be done virtually. So there's so many things to take into consideration um, as far as going virtual. It's concerning to me going back to school. It's also concerning trying to figure out if we do go with virtual learning, how to teach kindergarten. Um, Five-year-olds can't sit still long enough to sit at a computer screen, unless it's a video game maybe, or, or a movie, but um, how animated you will have to be in order to engage students virtually. Just having this conversation is difficult with ten technology. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. You're listening to a special program I hosted for Connecticut Public. My guests are Cherie Baldwin-Mohammed, a teacher at New Beginnings Family Academy, and Sarah Egan, Connecticut's child advocate. Coming up, school is often a safe haven for children. How are school districts connecting with families that depend on school resources the most? More right after the break. This is where we live. You're hearing a special program I hosted for Connecticut Public about schools reopening in a pandemic. My guests are Cherie Baldwin-Mohammed, a teacher at New Beginnings Family Academy, a public charter school in Bridgeport, and Sarah Egan, Connecticut's child advocate. I wanted to shift and, and talk more about what's going on in a child's home. We like to believe that home is a safe place, but in some instances, home is not safe for some children. And when I spoke to uh, Commissioner uh, Dr. Miguel Cardona uh, just a, a few weeks ago, he stressed that in some instances, school is the safest place for children. We hear from thousands of families that are saying, we can't do this remote learning thing anymore. My child has autism and it's not the same. A laptop and connectivity does not work for my child. Um, we hear from students who are saying, school, give me a reason to wake up in the morning. I would say that one of the things that I really enjoy about my school is we're social emotionally, um, we do social emotional development. My classroom is home base for a lot of students. So they would come to my class um, in the morning before they went to class to get a hug, um, to say hello, um, 
there was one particular uh, child I remember the principal was in my room when she came and she turned around and she saw a smile on the little girl's face and she said that child never smiles and she came to your class and you gave her a hug and that's the first time I saw her smile so a, a lot of things are going on in the children's lives um I, I was listening to the young boy that mentioned that his parents, you know, his mother died, his grandmother died. There was a lot of people in the family. There was a lot of death and trauma. So there's children that are already facing trauma. Now they're home where there's continuing to possibly face trauma. It may not necessarily be at their home, but it may be just the fact that they're not receiving as many hugs as they may have or maybe not necessarily see, receiving as much positive reinforcement as far as telling them that they're smart and that they're important. So those types of things are valuable at school um, that teachers tend to do that is not necessarily looked at as education, but it is because you have to educate the whole child. Um, so I think that a lot of students, um, I know one student in particular at my school that was very sad about not being able to return to school. There was quite a few that were waiting for the announcement because they were watching TV with their, their parents and they were asking. And then you can see the shift on their faces when they realized they weren't going back. And, and that was very sad to try to explain that they won't be with their friends, they won't be with the teachers. And that social interaction is so important for the development of children. And now because of everything that's going on with the pandemic, that's come to a halt. Um, and some of the most important people in children's lives a lot of times is their teacher. Sarah Egan, again, Connecticut's child advocate. Um, how do you respond to what Commissioner Cardona said and also uh, the anecdote that Cherie uh, shared with us? Well, our schools are all things to kids today. Our teachers, teachers like Cherie, are educators. They're, um, they are child care providers. They are disability support um, technicians, they are safe havens, school provides food, school provides medical care, school provides counseling. Um, and yes, there are many, many children who are dependent on those services. There are many families who are dependent on those services. And, and the loss of that school community, even for the necessary health and safety reasons that were so urgent uh, during the pandemic shutdown causes for some children irreparable harm. We worry the most about our most vulnerable children. That includes very young children. We worry about kids with disabilities because as the commissioner said, many of these children, by the time September comes, will have not had access to school for six months. From waking up every day knowing that they cannot give their children what their children so desperately need, these parents reach a breaking point. 
in addition to the losses that these children have sustained, right? And we have to find a way to support teachers, support parents, and support children, not just as, as Cherie and Deshaun talked about, not just through the provision of academic instruction, but through the provision, the relational provision of support. We're going to have to find a way. Uh, Sarah and Cherie, I wanted to talk more about this isolation and how it's impacting students and families. Uh, we heard from a, a parent from New Britain, her name is Emily, and she was very candid. Remote learning did not work for one of her children. Let's hear what she had to share. I feel that my children in particular need to go back to school because my middle child, who is seven years old, has struggled with mental health problems since this whole pandemic began. And it is largely due in part to not being able to socialize with their peers. That being said, I feel like safety is a real concern and Proper social distancing is not necessarily something that can be easy to do in a classroom setting. And I don't want my children or my children's teachers being treated as collateral damage while we figure out this whole thing. It's kind of starting to feel like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place because I want my children to remain safe and I want my children to remain healthy, but that includes their mental health in addition to their physical health. And what may be best for their mental health may end up not being best for their physical health and vice versa. Ultimately, I will make the decision to do whatever my husband and I deem to be the best way to keep all of my children the safest we can keep them, whether it be sending them to school or opting for distance learning. Unfortunately, it is not an easy decision and there doesn't seem to be a right answer here. Cherie and Sarah, how do you respond when you hear Emily from New Britain uh, share that with us. I'll start with you, Cherie. This feeling, a lot of parents are feeling it, that no matter what decision they make, it's not going to be the right one. Um, so many parents are having the discussion, and it's it's kind of like, do I send my kids to school because they need the socialization, they need to be with their teacher, they need to um, learn in an environment, and the fact that they're not sure as to what to do in order to help their children learn. Um, and then they, on the other hand, think about the pandemic and the possibility of their child getting sick or, um, as with myself, being exposed to um, COVID. So it's it's kind of really scary and it's really hard, I would think, for parents to decide. I have four children. Um, I'm not sure if I would even want to send them to school either. And when I talk to my son uh, and my daughter-in-law about their children, 
I had mentioned that, you know, I would support as much as possible, but I didn't think it was safe for them to go back to school. So I do understand that mother and her struggle and the conversations that she may be having because I've had the same ones. Sarah Egan, how do you respond hearing from Cherie and also that parent from New Britain, Emily? You know, I mean, it just makes me want to hug them, right, which I can't do. But, um, I mean, I hear so much pain in what they're saying because it's that, that choice that parents feel like they have to make between keeping their children physically healthy and emotionally and and, and um and academically healthy. Part of the pain we hear in that mom's voice is because um, she doesn't know if she'll be able to keep her child connected and supported if she's not in school. And the reality is, is that even if we reopen full in various communities on you know September 8th, September 9th, we don't know that it'll stay that way. Right? This is why the state has asked school districts to come up with three different plans. And what we know is we have to get a lot better at helping teachers, helping parents, and, and having school districts offer more meaningful support to students and families remotely. And how do you access mental health support remotely? Well. The, the pandemic has opened up a whole world of telehealth. How do we make more of those social emotional supports part of the everyday experience uh, for children and everyday service uh, uh, that they can access? How do we create um, uh, uh, opportunities for parents to tap into those supports, for them to get the training and support they need from, from community personnel? And I think that part of the answer to that is as having more public-private partnerships between school districts and local community providers who um, who do a lot of this uh, mental health and, and other case management support every day in communities. And we have to have more partnerships between the districts and those programs to do the engagement, to do outreach, to provide relational support, to um, to provide uh, some problem solving and case management to families that are struggling with more than 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 school and employment, but are struggling with a with a host of other challenges. Um, so I do think that there are things that we can do through state and local government to mitigate some of that pain and reduce some of that anxiety that that families have. In all reality, we just have a few weeks to deal with these pressing issues. When you think about school, could possibly reopen. And so, Cherie, going back to you, we heard Sarah outline some concrete steps, uh, better communication and, and other ways uh, to solve or to begin to solve some of these issues. But what do you want to hear from policymakers? Our state legislators uh, just ended uh, a special session. What kind of accountability do you want to hear from the leaders in our state that are thinking about these issues that families are wrestling with every day? I think what needs to happen which doesn't happen very often uh, a lot of people make policies about things that they may not have even visited um, what i think politicians need to do is visit the schools they need to do a hands-on assessment as far as what is lacking in the buildings and not necessarily just take the report from 
the school reporting that certain things are done. I think they need to be more hands-on with going out to the schools, checking the buildings, checking, and there needs to be more dialogue and conversation in order to help parents and teachers feel safer when it comes to sending their children back to school. Sarah Egan, what are your final thoughts? Well, I, I agree with a lot of what Cherie said. Um, we need to hear more at the top from people who are most affected by the decisions that are being made. I would love to see um, a reopening and equity task force that includes meaningful representation from educators, from parents, from youth, we cannot leave children behind and the status quo when it comes to equity, the status quo is, it is unfortunately unequal and unjust. And we have an obligation to change that and to put those structures in place to make sure we're changing it. That's all the time we have. I want to thank Sarah Egan again. She is the child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks very, very much for this important conversation. And I want to thank Cherie baldwin Mohammed again. She teaches at New Beginnings Family Academy, a public charter school in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Cherie, we thank you, and we hope that you stay safe if you do return to school in just a few weeks. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've been listening to Connecticut Conversations. Is School Safe? A joint production of CPTV and WMPR. Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff and Tess Terrible. Special thanks to Kay Talarski, James Clotter, Megan Boone, Julianne Veracci, Eugene Almatruda, Andy Patterson, Sam Hockaday, Kevin Cool, Mike Dumphy, and Tyler Russell. Also, Joe Koss and Tim Rasmussen. Thanks for listening.